I want to call your attention this afternoon to the book of Philippians. Philippians. And we want to look at three passages in this book. The first is in chapter 2, and we'll read verses 17 and 18. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Though the translation may not make it quite as clear, what is said in verse 18 is an imperative. It's a command. He says, for this same cause... It's the cause of the gospel, the cause of, of the, the good of souls in Philippi. Regardless of what happens to Paul, Paul says, For this cause, you must rejoice. Do rejoice. And rejoice with me. He says, don't feel sorry for me, but rejoice with me, because I'm rejoicing And you must rejoice. The second passage is in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, it is not grievous. But for you, or we might say, and for you, it is safe. It is certain and sure. So, very clearly, we have here in this verse a command, an imperative to rejoice. And then, in chapter 4, verse 4, we see the third of three passages here in this letter to the Philippians, in which Paul commands them and us to rejoice It says in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. The subject of joy and rejoicing in the Lord is undoubtedly the theme of this letter to the Philippians. Three times, by inspiration, he tells the readers to rejoice. Rejoice with me and rejoice in the Lord with me. The whole letter is focusing on joy, especially in the face of challenges, trials, and afflictions and suffering. Besides these passages that we've read, the term joy or rejoice 
occurs, well, a total of 19 times in these four chapters. It is a, a very thematic matter here that Paul mentions to the Philippians. And I would like for us to focus on this subject ourselves today. Because there is much that would hinder us from rejoicing. The world around us, sin within us, facing such an uncertain future in this world and even in this calendar year and the march of evil and knowing that we are not just liable to face the judgment of God, we are already facing the judgment of God. In some measure, we're already under the judgment of God. And we need to rejoice in the Lord. So let me make several observations on the the subject of Christian joy. First of all, it is not optional. Rejoicing is not a bonus that we give to God when things are going well and when we feel good or when we're in a good mood. It is something that is commanded of us three times in this little letter alone. To fail to rejoice in the Lord then is a sin. It's a sin of omission. We talked this morning about repenting of sins of omission. Well, here's one that maybe we need to repent of. I think I need to repent of. And that is failing to rejoice in the Lord at all times, in all circumstances. John Trapp writes, It is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. Both are commanded. We're commanded to repent. We're commanded to rejoice. The same Lord commands both things. And let me just show you that these three commands in Philippians are not the only ones in Holy Scripture. We have it in the Psalms many times over. Let me give you these. Let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy. That's Psalm 5. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice ye righteous and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. Psalm 33, rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Psalm 97, the Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. Well, that says it all. God is reigning over all of the earth. Let us rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the isles be glad. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Psalm 105, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Psalm 149, let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. We come to the New Testament and there's this notable command 
right in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, verse 12, when, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, rejoice, Jesus says, and be exceeding glad. Have an excessive gladness, not just a little bit. For great is your reward in heaven. Similarly, Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. He says, suffering for Christ is an evidence of discipleship, faithfulness to him, so rejoice now as well as later when Christ comes. James writes on the same subject, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience and so on. One more passage from the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 5.16, where the apostle simply says, Rejoice evermore. So let us get firmly fixed in our minds that rejoicing in the Lord is a duty. It's more than a duty. It's a privilege. But it is a a serious obligation. It's something that we owe to the Lord. And we need to take these commands seriously. So it's not optional. Secondly, the joy that is in view does not depend upon earthly circumstances. It doesn't depend upon things going well on this earth. These passages that I just read from the New Testament bear this out. It's when things are going terrible as far as earth is concerned. And there's danger and uh, persecution and threat and imprisonment and beating and all this kind of thing. It is in those circumstances we're commanded to rejoice and be exceeding glad. Reminds us even of an Old Testament uh, parallel where Habakkuk realizes that his nation is under the judgment of God And worse judgment is coming, worse than Habakkuk ever imagined. And yet he comes to see it from God's perspective. And he's able to say at the end of this little book of Habakkuk, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. If there's just an absolute economic collapse, and life as we know it ceases to be, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. 
you get the sense that Habakkuk had this confidence in God to such a degree that he was absolutely determined to rejoice no matter what, no matter how bad earthly circumstances became. And as I said a moment ago, there's much that would hinder joy today for us. Being under God's judgment as a nation. According to Romans 1, we're under his judgment already. And there's undoubtedly more to come. Sin in the world, everywhere we look, every story that we hear, every report that comes to us in the whole world, in our nation, in our city, in our own neighborhoods, perhaps in our homes and even in our own hearts in as much as there is remaining sin. This would tend to keep us from rejoicing. And not only sin, but all of the effects of sin, the, the grief, the, the sorrow, the, the sickness, the death, disappointment, loneliness, for some, it's loss of a loved one. For some, it's uh, trouble at work, trouble in, in the family, perhaps. False religion abounding. Lack of fruitfulness, or at least visible fruit in our labors. No revival. All these things might hinder our joy. Or perhaps we can handle the big problems pretty well, but it's the little day-to-day -day, uh, skirmishes that leave us frustrated and angry, impatient, upset. Whatever the case we must rise above these things. We must rise above all these things and rejoice in the Lord. Remember, when Paul was writing to the Philippians, he is a prisoner in Rome. And it's under those conditions that he is rejoicing in the Lord. He says, now I'm rejoicing, you rejoice with me. So this joy does not depend upon easy outward circumstances. Next, we should note that the joy in view is God-focused. The phrase here twice is, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. This is a joy that is unique and peculiar to believers. An unbeliever knows nothing of the joy of the Lord or joy in the Lord. Unbelievers find joy, but it's not the same joy. And it's not the right source of joy. And it's not a lasting source. 
They find joy in lesser things, in mere creatures, their family, their friends, relationships, possessions, honors, riches, pleasures. Unbelievers find joy in when their team wins the Super Bowl or when their candidate wins the election or when they win the lottery. The question for us is, is that all that we find joy in? Is that as far as our source of joy goes? If so, it is not the joy that we are commanded to have in these passages, in the Word of God. If our joy is all on these earthly things rather than in the Lord, it won't last. It's a counterfeit. Sooner or later, life itself will end. And all these earthly joys and earthly sources of joy will come to an end. It is imperative that we are rejoicing in the Lord. In the Lord. He gives us every cause to rejoice. Let me give you a couple of passages to that effect. And these are passages that are worthy of more than just a mere mention in a message like this. The prophet Jeremiah wrote these words, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Those are the very things that people of this world glory in and joy and rejoice in. God says, don't rejoice in those things. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. This is cause for joy, to know God. To know Him intimately. To know Him as my God, my Father, my Savior, my Lord, my friend, my Redeemer, my King. Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. If God delights in these things, we ought to delight in them. God gives us reason to rejoice in himself, in his perfections, in his mercies. Then, in a somewhat similar way here in the New Testament, let me remind you of this scene in Luke chapter 10. The Lord sends out these Seventy disciples to teach and preach and prepare the way before him. And he gives them power to to do great works. Cast out demons, heal the sick, and so on. And it says the seventy returned again with joy. 
Oh, they are so thrilled. They are so happy. Saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Lord, we've been casting out devils, demons. And they're so happy. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. But then listen to what he says, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. As great as it is to be able to cast out devils, demons, out of someone who's possessed, it's a greater privilege. And it's an evidence of greater divine power to have your name written in heaven. To have your sins blotted out and your name in God's book of life everlasting. Yes, God himself and his salvation should be the source of our joy. Nothing less. Well, we, we, we can rejoice, but this is all, it's all subsidiary to this, that we know the Lord, that our names are written in his book. <coughs> so he gives us cause to rejoice in himself. And I'll say a little more about that here in a moment. This joy is to be perpetual. Rejoice in the Lord always. And rejoice evermore. There in Philippians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. And the word always and the word evermore in those verses is one and the same word. It means, obviously, Forever, perpetually, without interruption. We are to rejoice in the Lord continually. We saw just uh, last week there in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they that mourn. And we made the comment that there is mourning in in the Christian experience. Only God knows how many tears are shed by his people. Tears over our own sin. Tears over the sins of others. Those we love. Sins of our nation. Sins of this world. There is great sorrow. And yet, in spite of that, We are commanded to rejoice always. We do not mourn always. We rejoice always. We mourn from time to time. We rejoice all the time, even even when we mourn. Christian joy exists simultaneously with sorrow. I remind you again of 2 Corinthians 6.10, where Paul describes himself as sorrowful yet always rejoicing 
sorrow comes and goes, the joy and rejoicing is constant. So joy is to be dominant even when there are tears and sorrows. Again, joy is not exclusive. There is sorrow. But joy is dominant. The psalmist explains it this way, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. We will only have pure joy, uninterrupted and unalloyed with grief and trouble in heaven. Until then, there will always be a mixture of sorrow and joy. And the joy keeps sorrow from overwhelming us. And sorrow gives depth to joy. The joy that has never been tested and knows no sorrow may be a very shallow joy. Sorrow gives depth to joy. Now, let me say a few words here about how to rejoice always in the Lord. Because sometimes effort is required. If we were better people, if we were better Christians, there would never be uh, effort necessary, I suppose. But sometimes... Because of our weakness and frailty, effort is required. We have to discipline our minds and rise above the hindrances in order to rejoice in the Lord. So the the first thing, and I have a list of four here. Number one is to rejoice in the Lord, see through the counterfeits. Recognize what is true and what is not. The counterfeits include having a naturally bubbly temperament. No, the command to rejoice has nothing to do with how you're naturally wired. And we talked a little bit about that in the context of the beatitude this morning. No, this is not about personality type. This joy, again, is not based in temporary changing circumstances. It's not a joy derived from drugs. It's not a joy derived from watching a funny comedian. I think of the verse in Ecclesiastes in regard to that that says, As the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. That dry, tender wood makes a lot of crackling and sparks as as it's burning to heat up a, a, a pail of water, a pot or a pot of food, let's say. That's what the laughter of the fool is like. Just a lot of noise and excitement while he's headed for hellfire. 
Again, don't mistake the true for the counterfeit. There is an artificial emotional state that can be induced by an energetic worship leader or worship team that's all a substitute for the real thing. It almost seems as if churches are thought to exist simply to produce a temporary emotional high for the sad masses of humanity. And you know, it's about the same kind of euphoria as comes at a, a good uh, football game. As soon as you walk out of the stadium, it's gone. And maybe what little remains by the time you have arrived at home, back to life as normal. That's not what the scriptures are talking to us about in Christian joy. And then there's just kind of pretending to be happy. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it all here. He says, the most depressing people I think I have ever met are those who try to give the impression that they are always cheerful and happy. (laughs) He says, that's the most depressing thing. There are sorrows. There are tears. And yet there's joy in the midst of it. And true joy can be a serious thing. True joy is not to be confused with just wearing a grin on your face. Number two, occupy your thoughts with biblical and spiritual themes. Or another way to say that is meditate in the Lord. Meditate upon the Lord. Think of the triune God, His glorious being, perfection, and excellence. It only befits the creature to rejoice in His Creator, who gives every good and perfect gift. Think of the blessings of common grace that He gives. In spite of our fallenness, He continues to give us many benefits. Think especially of the blessings of saving grace, redemption. Meditate upon His everlasting love that for no reason in us chose us to be His own and put us into Christ, gave us to Him and gave Him to us in this covenant of grace in which Christ is our surety, He answers for our sins and gives us His righteousness freely. And it's all at His expense. God gives us the Holy Spirit as our comforter to dwell within us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He makes all things to work together for our good. He gives us these Exceeding great and precious promises that are ours in Christ from a God who cannot lie. 
He promises us final victory. Listen, the future on this earth is uncertain, but the future in terms of eternity is most certain. He says to his disciples the night before he was crucified, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why does his overcoming of the world bring us good cheer? It's because we are in union with him and his overcoming is our overcoming. It is the guarantee of our more than conquering. We have, again, every reason to rejoice. Oh, what is ours in Christ? Everything is ours, as we saw this morning. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Let us consider much and often the wonder of redemption and the privilege of having a personal share in it. I mean, it would be cause for rejoicing if God saved somebody else. But for God to save me, that's even more personal. We can say with Isaiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Let us give our minds to these things. Think much upon Christ and all that he is to us. Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Christ has borne our sorrows. Think of that. He was a man of sorrows and surely he's borne our sorrows. He bore them in that he entered into them and experienced them. And he bore them in some sense so that we would not have to bear them. Consider him. Hebrews 12 says, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. Thirdly, let us avoid hindrances to rejoicing. And We've already hinted at this some, but let me just focus on this now. A weak devotional life is a hindrance to rejoicing. When our devotional life suffers, rejoicing suffers. There's a direct correlation. If we're to rejoice always, we need to be Staying in the Word of God, reading it, thinking on it, praying through it, and we need it every day. Feeding our souls on an earth-grown diet is sure to make us sad. And this is relevant to some of the conversation we had at the lunch table I think we should 
be knowledgeable of current events in this world and in our nation and in our city and state. Some people complained to Mr. Spurgeon that he read a daily newspaper. They thought a Christian shouldn't waste time reading a daily newspaper. And his answer was, in Spurgeonic humor, I read the paper every day because I want to see how my Heavenly Father is governing His world. Well, that's assuming that you get the truth in the paper. You get maybe a little bit of truth still from these sources. It is our challenge today, and I'll speak for myself, my challenge today is not to let the knowledge of current events keep me from rejoicing in the Lord. That's the challenge. And we have to counterbalance all of the bad news with the good news. And there's only one place to find that, and that's in the Word of God and in uh, inspiration especially and in good books and devotional material also. Certainly willful sin is a hindrance to rejoicing. David found that out, didn't he? And as he repents in Psalm 51, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Another hindrance to rejoicing is allowing yourself to be a complainer. There's plenty to complain about, but most of it does not need to be articulated. (laughs) And being a complainer is contagious. It keeps others from rejoicing as well. The fact is, the Word of God, the biblical perspective, the promises of God give us every reason to be cheerful and not complaining. So let us avoid these hindrances to rejoicing. Let us not drag others down, but lift one another up. And then fourthly, this may be something of a, of a motivation to rejoice, how to rejoice. Recognize the contradiction that a sad Christian is. Yes, there are sorrows, but as much as we can, we keep those within The world loves to accuse religion in general and Christians in particular of being those who encourage sorrow. And perhaps some Christians are all too ready to accommodate that charge and bring that charge upon themselves. Beloved, it's a terrible testimony. 
to a sad world to see sad Christians. We should be serious, yes, because life is serious. Matters of eternity are serious, but not morbid. And the, the current events that keep the people of this world in fear and dread and sorrow, we must, I say, rise above. We have a perspective that they don't have. We have a foundation that they don't have. We have a Savior that they don't have. This is all that we claim. But when they see us as sad as they are, what does that say? About our God. We read in our daily readings just recently about Jacob coming and meeting Pharaoh there in his old age in Egypt. And he says, the days of my life have been few and, and evil. Wow, what a, an impression of Jacob's God must Pharaoh have gotten. Joy should be our prevailing disposition. And if I could quote again Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he says, The true Christian is never a man who has to put on an appearance of either sadness or joviality. The Christian is not superficial in any sense, but is fundamentally serious and Fundamentally happy. Well, the world around us, our neighbors, lost friends, desperately need to see joyful believers who are rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. A joy that is unshakable. The worst tragedy comes into your life, and yet they see you handling it and continuing to rejoice in the Lord. That, I'm telling you, is a witness and a testimony like no other. But if they see you angry and sad, like they are about the same things that they are, what witness or testimony can you have? It's nullified. So, yes, the world around us needs to see truly joyful believers, not giddy and grinny necessarily but deep, profound, stable joy in the Lord. Let us show them. God help us to show them that joy.